This morning we're going to look at verses 20 through 26 of John chapter 12. We read it earlier on with Pastor Dale, and I will read it again, then we'll pray, then we'll work our way through the passage. Now there are some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we ask for your help. The psalmist prays, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things in your law. The Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would know what is the hope of their calling, what are the riches of their inheritance, and what is that power that works in them who believe. And so we're praying, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see Jesus more clearly, that we might see the cross more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. It is helpful to look and see what the Apostle Paul says about the cross. It's the inspired Word of God. It's helpful to look at what the Apostle Peter says about the cross. But there's something compelling about hearing from Jesus' own lips what He says about the cross. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus... I'm not a red-letter Christian that believes that Jesus' words are somehow more inspired than the other words of of the apostles. But nonetheless, it is helpful just to, to kind of peer into and see what does Jesus say? What was His self-conscious understanding of the cross. Well, I think this passage this morning helps us, gives us a window into his understanding of the cross that he would endure before he even goes there. And this passage is in the context of John chapter 12. If you remember at the beginning of John chapter 12, it's Mary of Bethany who anoints the, the feet uh, of Jesus. And, uh, and this kind of sparks something of a debate with Judas. And, and Jesus rebukes Judas and tells him that they'll always have the poor with him. And she's done a good thing. And then after that section, we, we move to what's commonly called the triumphal entry where Jesus is now coming into Jerusalem. This is probably Sunday before the the Friday execution. So we're now within the very last week of Jesus' life. And, And if you remember from last week, they brought out the palm branches, which was a symbol of Jewish triumphant nationalism. And, and the crowd clearly was perceiving this Jesus as the Messiah that they wanted, namely a national liberator. But there was something striking about Jesus intentionally then sitting upon a donkey, right? A donkey that is described as meek and lowly and as a, any diplomat in the ancient world would, as a king or as an ambassador would come into a country. If they came on a horse, then it was more likely a sign of war. But if they came on a donkey, it was more of a sign of peace. And so Jesus is coming, bringing an offer of peace even as Zacharias says to the Gentiles. And, and this is kind of how this 
that section from last week ends with the Pharisees squabbling and fighting amongst themselves, blaming one another, saying the whole world has gone after Jesus. And of course they spoke better than what they knew because this is where we pick up the narrative in verse 20. Immediately after they make that statement that the whole world has gone after Him, in verse 20 it says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. So, John immediately turns the camera to this group of people who are described as Greeks. Now, it, it would be it, it's helpful to understand. Now these these may have been literally Greeks, um, but we do also need to understand that much uh, in the Bible, often the Bible will describe anybody who's non-Jewish as being Greek because after the domination of Alexander the Great, remember basically much of the inhabited world had become Hellenized. And so most of the world was influenced by Greek culture, spoke the Greek language. So if you weren't a Jew, you were often considered uh, a Greek. Now, they may have literally been Greeks. We don't know that for sure. Um, There was definitely a section in the Decapolis, actually, where Philip uh, was from, that had a large inhabitation of Greek people. And so, nonetheless, we know they're Gentiles for sure. They may have literally been Greeks. And they're coming to worship at the feast. Now, this should strike us as odd, right? Because this was a Jewish feast, right? This was the Passover feast here in John chapter 12. Why would these Gentiles be coming to the feast? Well, there was a category of Gentiles from a Jewish perspective that were known as God fears. Now, these were basically Gentile proselytes to Judaism. They believed in the true living God of Israel. They believed in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, But they didn't quite go the full route of conversion uh, to be converted to Judaism, which would have meant they would have had to be, at least their men, to be circumcised. And so they didn't quite count the cost that much to go that far in their conversion to Judaism. But nonetheless, they feared the God of Israel. They believed in the Scriptures. And so, think of... And they would come to these feasts. And by the way, the temple did have accommodations. The the temple that was built during the time of Solomon and then later on now with Herod's temple, it had what was called the court of the Gentiles. This was the outer court in which Gentiles were free to come into to this part of the temple. Now they couldn't go into the, the next kind of inner layer, which was the court of women and then the court of Israel, but they could go into that outer court of the temple. And so they are coming there to the Passover feast. And uh, verse 21, These men came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, it is interesting that they come to Philip. Now, Philip and Andrew are the only ones out of the 12 disciples who have Greek names. Okay, so that's interesting. Not only that, Philip identif- or, uh, John, uh, the author of this gospel, identifies Philip as being from Bethsaida of Galilee, which was one of these areas in Galilee that had a larger Greek population. So it very well may be that Philip was known amongst these Greeks in this area of Galilee. And so they naturally go to Philip. They know he's got an inside track to Jesus. He's got backstage passes. And they they say, we want to see Jesus. Now, this is a great statement, right? I mean, they want to see Jesus. They desire to see Jesus. Now, obviously, I think it wasn't that, you know, they just wanted to see him, you know, like maybe like some teenager is excited to see some teenage rock group or something. We want to see them. Um, But they want to see him with the opportunity to interview him, to ask him some questions. And again, think of it from their perspective. They're Gentiles. They're they're committed to the true and living God. Um, 
but but they're still kind of like outsiders, right? You know, and and they're hearing all these different opinions about Jesus, and, and they're they're observing that many of the the Jewish elite do not like Jesus. But then there's many in the crowds who are attracted to Jesus, and he's obviously doing public miracles. He's raising people like Lazarus from the dead, and so they want to, in a sense, go to the horse's mouth, right? They wanted to to interview Jesus for themselves. So, what does Philip do? Verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew, what should we do? And Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now, it is interesting to note, every time Andrew is brought up in the Scriptures... Uh, he's always bringing people to Jesus. It's, it's a great characteristic, right? I mean, he's the disciples always bringing people to Jesus. And so that's what he does here. He brings these Greeks to Jesus. And let's see Jesus' response. Verse 23, And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Say what? <laughs> right? Like, it's fascinating because Jesus doesn't even seem to acknowledge their presence, right? He, he doesn't, in fact, the rest of this passage, there's no recording of him directly interacting with these Greeks. And yet he's obviously cognizant that they're there. In fact, What's fascinating is it would appear that their mere presence and their inquiry into Jesus, Jesus takes as a signal. It's a signal that God is doing something, stirring something amongst Gentile people that is indicative of the reality that He is about to die upon the cross. See, Jesus knows that it's Pentecost that's on the horizon, Acts chapter 2, where all these Gentiles are going to be coming into Israel and the gospel is going to go forth and the gospel is going to spread throughout the book of Acts to the Gentile world. He knows that, you know, as is recorded in Matthew chapter 28, after His resurrection, He is going to summon His disciples to make disciples of all the nations. And so Jesus has all this on the horizon. Now all of a sudden these Greeks are coming to Him. And this is a signal now. This is a signal for Him to give some instruction, some teaching to His disciples and also to those Greeks who evidently are still there, even though they're not being addressed directly, at least as recorded by John. Some instruction and teaching about what is about to happen. And so... What we're going to see, spend the rest of our morning doing is looking at three reasons why the cross, Jesus' impending death, is glorious. And it starts with this statement that Jesus makes. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The first reason the cross is glorious is because the cross is the execution of a plan. It's the execution of a plan. We can see that even just by the very context here where these Gentiles come to Jesus, these Greeks show some interest, and all of a sudden now Jesus says, He's looking at the calendar, He's looking at His watch, the hour has now come. This is, the significance of this is that if you're following throughout the Gospel of John, this mention of the hour comes up over and over throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, do you remember when uh, that first miracle Jesus does in Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2, the changing of the water into wine? Well, before He does that miracle, it's His mother who sees this situation that there's no wine left, and she wants Jesus to do something. And Jesus says in John chapter 2, in verse 4, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. We see it later on with Jesus' brothers, his half-brothers. They want him to go up to the feast, remember? They say anybody who wants to be a public figure doesn't, doesn't stay quiet, doesn't stay private. They, they try to be Jesus' own public relations people. 
And Jesus says in, in John 7, verse 6, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. We see it later on in John chapter 8. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple, and no one seized Him. Why? Because His hour had not yet come. So all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus, whenever somebody wants Him to go public with something, He will often say, My hour has not yet come. Or when they come and want to kill Him, no, they're not going to kill Him yet. Why? His hour had not yet come. But now, we come to John chapter 12, and here for the first time in John 12, on the Sunday before His execution, and these Gentiles come to Jesus, Jesus now says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he's clearly talking about the reality of his impending execution. Now, that should be shocking to us, right? Because if you knew you were going to be publicly executed, would you speak of it as the hour of your glory? The hour when you will be put on display where you will be magnified, where you will be honored. I mean, crucifixion was the most shameful way to die. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul, you know, when he, he speaks that the Gentiles think of the preaching of the cross as what? Foolishness. A Savior, a, a Messiah, a King who would be publicly executed... What more shameful way to die than to be publicly executed? To die a long, drawn-out, grueling, agonizing death. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this title, the Son of Man, it's a common, in fact, it's the most common title Jesus ever uses of Himself. It's very rare that Jesus speaks of Himself as the Christ. There's only, as far as I know, two occasions in the Gospels where He self-identifies as the Christ. But Son of Man, over and over. Right? Son of Man, what does it mean? It's Son of Man. Now, we often think of it speaking of His humanity. And there, there's, a, there's an element of truth to that. He is a Son of Man in that He is a Ben-Adam. He is a, a descendant of Adam. Which makes sense in the context that Jesus is that second Adam. He is that second representative. And if you remember, Adam was a mediatorial king in the garden. God gave Adam dominion, kingship, rulership over planet earth. And so now here Jesus is as the second Adam, as the representative king for a new humanity. But the most familiar signal that this would have meant in the ears of those who are listening would have been Daniel chapter 7. The book of Daniel speaks of God's rulership over the nations amidst the, the Gentile nations. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 14, it might be helpful for you to turn there if you have a Bible with you. If not, you can just read above. Daniel has this vision. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. Now think about this. If the palm branch crowd was still here when Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The palm branch crews, let's get it on. They're sharpening their swords, ready to shed some blood here and chop up some Gentiles. But yet, again, the Gentiles are coming to Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And Jesus has something else in mind with the glory 
of the hour of the Son of Man, namely His crucifixion. He has something more like Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 in mind. You know, we're familiar with Isaiah 53, but you should know Isaiah 53 starts in Isaiah 52. The song begins in Isaiah 52 at the end when it says in verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Is that how we normally think of Isaiah 53? The servant being high and lifted up and exalted. The same kind of language, by the way, that is used of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 6, where, 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 uh, where Isaiah sees a vision of Yahweh high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Isaiah says here, I see the servant high and lifted up. And then in verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any mankind and his form more than the sons of men. So he speaks of the servant being high and lifted up and exalted and then immediately all of a sudden there's this picture of one whose face is marred. You can barely even recognize him. And, and, and it's almost like Isaiah sees a vision of Jesus with a crown on his head and blood streaming down his face and a back that's been filleted by whips and you can hardly even recognize him. And this is all 700 years before Jesus was even born. But, but for my purposes, Isaiah speaks of this as him being high and lifted up. It's the same language that Jesus uses here. He's speaking of the cross, this awful, gruesome, publicly humiliating death as his hour of glory. But why would it be his hour of glory? Well, There's a hint of this actually in the previous chapter, back to John chapter 12. But previous to John 12, for you mathematicians, is John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, there's a kind of microcosm of what Jesus is doing in the macrocosm, right? You know, it's about death, it's about resurrection, but but John gives us some helpful theological pegs to understand. Because how the chapter starts out, they come to Jesus, says, the one you love is sick. And it's clear, Jesus loves Lazarus and he's sick. And then Jesus says that this sickness will not end in death, but this is what? Verse 4 that the Son of God, for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. This sickness will not end in death, but this is for the glory of God, and that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And so, Jesus loves Lazarus, but He also loves God's glory. And He lets him die. He lets him die for what reason? Well, He tells us, for the glory of God. For the glory of God? Well, because He's the one who summons Lazarus out of the grave. He's the one who winds up the champion at the end of it as Lazarus comes out of the tomb with his grave clothes on. And so what's the point? That that is a microcosm of the execution of the grand plan. The grand plan of God allowing humanity to die. A God who loves humanity. Why? So that He could resurrect the people through His own death and resurrection. That He could rescue a people. That He could be the champion, the deliverer of that people. For who would know the lengths and the depth and the breadth of the love of God were it not for the cross. I mean, we would never know had there never been a fall, had there never been death, had we not lived in a fallen world, would we know the depths of the love of God? That He would send His own Son to die upon the cross. Would we know how serious God is about sin? That the people whom God loves, He could not just wink at their sins 
say, coming to heaven. No, a price would have to be paid. His own Son would have to absorb the full fury of hell. Could we know the infinite wisdom and majesty of God? What a brilliant plan to save sinners through placing their punishment upon another, His representative, His Son of Man, the second Adam. We can never know the glory of God in the way that we know it were it not for the cross. And this is why the, the cross, the hour is the execution of the plan. A plan that began before the creation of the world. A plan that is the Son's moment of glory as well as the Father's moment of glory. And so, friend, I hope the only emotion that is struck in your heart when you think of the cross is not merely pity. Because it was all part of the plan. It was all part of the plan. Jesus said, my hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Friend, do you trust God and His plan? You should. But not only is the cross the execution of a plan, it's the multiplication of a people. Notice verse 24. Immediately, Jesus gives this analogy, this illustration. He says, truly, truly. Now, here's another truly, truly. The double amens of the Gospel of John. This is Jesus' way of saying, listen up. Perk up your ears. I'm about to drop a truth bomb on you. Listen up. Truly, truly. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So again, this gives us a window into seeing why the cross is glorious. Because it, at a bare look at it, it doesn't look glorious. It looks like Jesus lost. It's death. It's awful. It's public execution. But Jesus clarifies and He helps us to see something of this glory, not by the awful horrors of Golgotha, but the glory in what it was accomplishing. And He uses this illustration. And we need some help with this illustration because I'm a city slicker. And I don't know much about seeds. But... Recently, somebody did give me a a Chia Pet of Richard Simmons. And I had to take the seeds and wet them and put them all over Richard Simmons' head and chest. And so he has chest hair and head hair. But but you get the point. Even though you're not a farmer, even though you're you're a city slicker, you don't have to be an Einstein, right? This little seed, if it remains by itself, it just... If you don't plant it... It doesn't produce, you know. You go to, the, to, to a place and you get a, some seeds like these uh, heads of wheat here. And they're, they're by themselves. They stay in the bag. But you put them in the ground and they cease to exist. They die. Then all of a sudden you have grains of wheat and even more seeds that multiply and bring about more grain. And so what Jesus is saying here is that my hour is glorious. This is the hour of my glory because of what it accomplishes. This is the multiplication of a people. This is a fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant way back in Genesis 12 and 15 where God says to Abraham that you will be a blessing to the nations. That I'm going to bless the world, the Gentiles through you. And so this is, the, this is the, the big hour, the big transition in redemptive history is taking place through this death. And notice, if you will with me, this is a death that actually accomplishes something. It's not a vague death that is universal 
and now it's up to you. No, this is a death that actually produces fruit. If you look at Isaiah 53, Jesus saw his offspring, seed language, and his soul was satisfied. He saw what he accomplished. The salvation of his people and he was satisfied. Hopefully your understanding of the cross is not one that God is wringing His hands in heaven. Boy, I really hope somebody believes in Jesus. And you feel bad for God? No. No, He will draw people to Himself. In fact, by the very end of this passage, it says when the Son of Man is lifted up, He will draw all men to Himself. And in this context, with the Greeks still listening, He's talking about all kinds of people He's going to bring to Jesus. They will come. This is what he says in, in, in John chapter 6 and verse 37. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And, and the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. That, that everyone that the Father has given me I will raise up on the last day. And everyone who looks to the Son and believes will have eternal life. It's a guarantee. It's a redemption that's accomplished. It will bear fruit. It is the multiplication of a people. And this, by the way, should help us to see that we can have some involvement in this multiplication process. That we can have some involvement in spreading this message of Jesus, spreading the the seeds as it were, and seeing God open blind eyes. God raise people from death to life as we tell them this glorious news of the hour of the Son of Man. Friends, so we have to be involved in this process. No, we don't. Our death, our death is not vicarious like Jesus, but nonetheless, as we're going to see in a minute here, we do in some way participate in this death for the multiplication of people. Much of this requires us dying to the applause of others. Living in the fear of the Lord rather than the fear of man. Often when I'm tempted to shrink back and not speak up for Christ, it's helpful after I've confessed my sin, asked for strength, to visually think of Jesus in all His authority. In Matthew 28 says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. King Jesus has summoned me to be a disciple maker. Therefore, what this person thinks of me is not really all that important right now. So, the cross. In the cross there is the execution of a plan. There is a multiplication of a people. But thirdly, there is a participation of a people. Verse 25, 26. Notice what Jesus says here. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Now, this is one of those paradoxical statements that we see that come up quite frequently in the Gospels. Losing your life to find it, keeping your life only to lose it. And all these statements, by the way, they almost always, as far as I can tell, they come up in the context of calling people to discipleship. In other words, this is what it means to be a Christian. 
to, in some sense, hate your life in this world so that you may find it. Uh, for instance, listen to Mark chapter 8 and verse 34 to 30, 38. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, in our 2021 20, years, we hear that, okay, take up your cross. That sounds familiar, you know. My... Uh, my neighbor is my cross to bear. You know, my bad knee is my cross to bear. That, that's not what Jesus meant. Now, that may be an application, but the cross in the ancient world was the symbol of public execution. It's estimated during the lifetime of Jesus, the Romans executed through crucifixion 30,000 people. 30,000 crucifixions. Because you, you can imagine it was fairly regular occurrence. You're walking with your family and you see some dude hanging on a cross with a placard over his head, you know, saying, you know, he tried to rob a bank or he tried to do such and such. He, he defied Caesar. And that puts a lump in your throat, right? And so when Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It was a call to the death march. It was saying, if you're going to follow me, you must be willing to even die for my sake if necessary. And again, this is hard for us to appreciate in our era. We have crosses around our neck, you know, cross earrings, and I'm not saying get rid of those things, but imagine wearing a noose earring, a noose necklace. <laughs> Say, whoa, you know, you're a little bit deranged, a little bit disturbing. But that's a symbol of execution. This is what Jesus says. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Verse 35, For whoever wishes, here's this similar phrase, to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will find it. Sound familiar? It's the same language from John chapter 12. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will We'll keep it to eternal life. It's the same kind of language. We see the same thing in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. The same context of a call to discipleship. It says, He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. What's the point here? When Jesus says in John chapter 12, He who loves his life will lose it. It's the idea of being so devoted to your self-preservation that your allegiance to Jesus is not enough that you'd be willing to give it up. So that hating your life in this world is not necessarily some kind of self-loathing, but is the idea that if somebody was looking on and say, man, this person has a death wish. This person must not care about living. I mean, they would give up their family. They would be willing to go to prison. They would be willing to endure this. For Jesus, they must hate themselves. And so, friends, this is important. Did you know the Gospel of John is often used, or I should say abused, as a camping ground for easy believism? People say, well, just believe. Just believe, you know. And what they mean by that. You know, you, you believe and you continue to live like the devil. Oh, they believe. They've said the prayer. They believe. And they'll quote passages from the Gospel of John, which says what? Believe, right? And how can you argue with that? Except for the fact that John makes it clear there is a kind of belief, a kind of assent to the facts of the Gospel that doesn't save anybody. That true belief includes this kind of Hating your life to keep it. This kind of denying self, taking up the cross to follow Jesus. This kind of burying yourself, participating with Jesus in His suffering because you're so devoted and committed to Jesus that even if it means like our brothers over in the East, we're willing to be separated from family, friends, to be incarcerated if necessary. Because Jesus died for me. He paid the price for my sin. He owns me. I remember one pastor telling a story. He was speaking the gospel to this 
woman who's lived a very godless life as a, a lesbian and he explained the gospel how God in his mercy and grace will forgive you of all your sins you can be justified before him it's a free gift and when he tried to press her on trusting in Christ she said I, I can never do that I can never do that he said why? it's free she said because there's nothing then he couldn't ask of me and I would have to do it. There's nothing he couldn't ask of me and I would have to do it. She got it. That's the summons of the gospel. And when you respond to the reality that this Jesus, this kernel of wheat would be planted into the ground on your behalf, He would absorb all the fury of hell for you. And you are forgiven. You are welcome into your family. Now you know my allegiance is to Him. He is the ultimate authority in my life. He calls the shots. That's what it means to believe. That He is the King. He is the Lord. So friend, maybe you're acquainted with the Gospel. Maybe you assent in your head, yeah, Jesus died for me. But you've never yet taken that step to say, yeah, my allegiance is to Him even if it means death. Can I just encourage you this morning, count the cost. Because it might cost you everything. We've lived in a bubble in the great American experiment for a couple centuries. But that bubble, the air is coming out of it. It's coming out quickly. Might cost you a job. Might cost you a promotion. Might cost you your freedom. Might cost you a lawsuit. One day, it might cost you your life. Can I tell you something? Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Notice what He says in verse 26. If anyone serves Me, he must follow Me. And I think what He means by this, follow Me in what? He's just spoken of Himself as that kernel that's about to die and be planted in the ground. And again, this thing back to... Uh, you know, to, to chapter 12 earlier on where he's coming in on a donkey, right? He's not coming in on the war horse. So this means those who are his followers, those who serve him, those whose allegiance is to him, they also come with the mentality that I am ready to lay down my life. I'm ready to eat the cost on this deal. And this may mean me being cut off. That I'm not here for warfare. I'm here to lay down my life on behalf of others. I'm here to lay down my life on behalf of the King. But there's this beautiful promise here. Verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. What a beautiful statement. There my servant, where I am, there my servant will also be. In other words, Jesus here promises, yeah, this deal is bad for your health. <laughs> this deal here, it might cost you your life. But you know what? I'm going to be right there, right beside you. Wherever this happens, I'm there. Whatever hour of the day, if there's a noose around your neck, if there's fire lapping at your feet, if there's chains around your wrist, I am there. And oh, my brothers, my sisters, read the testimonies of those who spent years in prison cells behind bars for the cause of Christ. And amidst the agony, amidst the torture, there's this testimony of this tremendous sweetness of being right beside Jesus. You think of Richard Wormbrand in the midst of a communist Romania enduring persecution and incarceration for 12 years, being tortured, them telling him lies that his son had abandoned the faith and had embraced communism. 
torturing Him over and over and over. But there Jesus was in His midst. Right there with Him. And then this at the end of verse 26. And if anyone serves Me, the Father will honor Him. This is the glory of the cross. That as we participate in the cross by taking up our own cross, while it's not vicarious, while it's not substitutionary, it's following in the footsteps of our Savior, He promises for His own honor, glory, reward, crowns. What an amazing promise. It makes me think of the book of Esther. Remember in the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus gains knowledge that Mordecai had foiled a plot to execute him. And he wants to honor Mordecai. And you remember he asked Haman, who thinks he's the one who's going to be honored, what should I do to honor somebody? You can just imagine the smile on Haman's face. Well, put him on a big steed horse. Put a robe on his back. Let him prance around town on that horse and everybody bow and honor that person. Ahasuerus says, good idea. Mordecai? You can imagine the God of the universe having a horse ready for one of His own. Get on this horse. I want you to go around town. You're my special honored servant. You are a servant of the King. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my presence. Friend, this is the honor that is given to those who would participate with Christ in His sufferings. To those who would heed the the call of following Him. You may be sitting here, perhaps like myself, and you think, well, that sounds pretty high and lofty, but what if I don't have the strength What if I don't have the strength? Friend, remember Jesus said, you follow me, you're one of my servants, I will be there with you. He will give you the strength. Well, you say, what about Peter? I mean, he acted like a little girl. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. When a little girl was questioning him. Peter did recover from that, didn't he? The testimony of church history and the testimony of John itself is that one day somebody would lead Peter in his death where he did not want to go. Namely, execution style. The Lord will give you the strength. But in the meantime, how do you prepare for that? Grow deeper in your love and devotion to Jesus. Stoke. Get the bellows out on the fire of your love for Jesus so that it becomes white hot. And if your love for Jesus is white hot, then you can sing with the great Luther hymn, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. He'll give you the strength. One of my favorite periods of church history to read about is the English Reformation. It was a very turbulent time in church history, especially in England. England began to shackle, uh, to, to be unshackled by the chains of Roman Catholicism in a very strange kind of way. It was through Henry VIII. Perhaps you remember Henry VIII, uh, the guy with eight wives, killed half of them. Uh, 
it didn't have very good beginnings. But in the midst of shedding those shackles and people beginning to read Luther's writings, many of the church leaders begin to begin to come to Protestant convictions. Guys like Thomas Cramner and Hugh Bilney and two of my favorites. And this was my promise to my wife if we ever had twins. They would be named Latimer and Ridley. <laughs> that never happened, but... Maybe if we ever have dogs, but I'm allergic to dogs. <laughs> Latimer and Ridley, they were apprehended after Mary Tudor, also known as Bloody Mary, ascended the throne in the 1550s. And she began executing all these Protestants. And two that were high on the most wanted list were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They were bishops. They had great leadership positions in the Church of England and had been very important in disseminating the Gospel to the people and teaching them. And so Bloody Mary knew she had to rid the land of these men. And it wasn't exactly a merciful way to die. They would be burned alive. And on that fateful day Hugh Latimer as they're both tied up Ridley and Latimer being burned together alive Hugh Latimer says to Ridley Mr. Ridley play the man today we will light such a candle in England that will never be burned out and both of them were burned alive and indeed it was true through their death, the people watched, initially with suspicion at these strange Protestants and their strange teachings, wondering, are they in it for the money? Are they in it for something else? But when they saw them seal their beliefs written in blood, they knew, indeed, there's something to these Protestant convictions. And the gospel winds up spreading throughout England and ultimately to America. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You for the cross. The cross that Jesus bore, the glorious hour. And Lord, we see the summons to hate our life in this world, to be willing to die. And it's a high calling, Lord. And we don't know if any in this room will have that privilege, that opportunity. But Lord, we pray. We pray that we would count the cost here and now, that we would take up our cross, as Luke says, daily and follow Jesus because He's worth it. Oh God, rescue us from a comfortable Christianity. Rescue us from being idolatrously in love with our own comforts and securities. May we be willing to risk our lives for the cause of Christ. In whose name we pray.